Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Happy May the 4th be with you to all Star Wars fans. The movie industry in our city has been booming for years now. And in our new series, Film Crew Files, we get to know some of the hard-working Atlantans who keep these sets running smoothly and to add to our local economy. Today, we'll learn about the many aspects of a set decoration buyer's job. From Sarah Riney, a new outdoor immersive theater experience is coming to the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance. Cassie's Ballad is set during the tragic year of Atlanta's missing and murdered children. We'll hear from playwright Adai Moon and director Lydia Ford later this hour. But first, a question for you. How old would you like to be when you retire? Well, if your U.S. National Park Service ranger Betty Reed Soskin, the answer would be, 100 years old. Last month, Soskin hung up her ranger hat after an astonishing career of service. While her longevity is remarkable, even more extraordinary is the way she challenges us all to move together toward a more perfect union. Her amazing story is the subject of the documentary No Time to Waste, The Urgent Mission of Betty Reed Soskin. This past November, Soskin joined me via Zoom along with Carl Beidelman, the filmmaker behind No Time to Waste. I began our conversation with a quote from one of Betty's Park Service colleagues. Betty, your Park Service colleague, Kelly English, describes you as Betty Davis, Angela Davis, and Yoda all in one. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that's the way she describes it. <laughs> I, I would say that's some high praise on all three counts. Would you tell us about your upbringing in the early 20th century. I was born in Detroit, Michigan, left there at the age of three to go back to New Orleans, which was my family's home, and came to California at six years old. And I've been here ever since. Hmm. In the film, we see you speaking about your great-grandmother who was born into slavery in 1846. Yes, she was. And she wasn't freed until she was 19 years old. What kind of feedback or response have you received from people after sharing her story? That has surprised me because I didn't know about slavery until I was in school. I don't think that anyone told the story of slavery to their children. I think it was too painful. It wasn't until I was in school, I began to hear about 
slavery. And then I didn't apply it to myself until much later. But you had this matriarch. Yes. It came full-blown for me when I was checking out my history. And I learned that my great-grandmother was born in 1846. She lived to be 102, which meant that she died in 1948. My mother, who was raised by my great-grandmother, was born in 1894 and lived to be 101 dying in 1995. I was born in 1921, and I'm still here, which means that in these three lives, it's almost 300 years of history. And it isn't until recently that I've begun to fully appreciate that. I was 27 years old, married, and a mother by the time my slave ancestor died. I knew her as a matriarch of my family. She was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation when she was 19. Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, and my great-grandmother were alive at the same time. It was his action that freed her from slavery. Um, what led you to become a National Park Service ranger at age 85? I really don't even know. I was working as a field representative for a couple of members of the California State Assembly, Dion Aaroner and Lonnie Hancock later, who actually became a state senator. And I was working in a one-person satellite office alone and taking in all the things that my area consisted of. And in that time, the park was being created, and they were meeting about how it was to be. And I became very interested in the fact that the park was being created in honor of the women who worked for the men who were overseas. That was only part of the story. The story really was much, much larger than that. And it was in finding out by checking out the stories that all of this became very important to me. And I began to help to shape the park, which I went on doing for four years. At the end of four years, became a park ranger. Yeah. You work at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park. Yes. And in the documentary, you talk about not finding yourself no. in the character of Rosie the Riveter. How was that emblematic of American history at large? I don't know how I discovered that. I didn't see any signs of the people that I knew in the narrative. And gradually, I came into the picture long about the time when I discovered the Rosie Memorial. And I was in the picture by that time. And it was kind of wonderful that in the memorial, it's full length of a victory ship. It has plaques in the ground that tell the story as you're walking in one direction. And when you're coming back, it has quotes from the present day Rosies. It's an extremely wonderful, wonderful moving thing. And it's, it's a timeline. Yes. And you helped change the narrative of that timeline. Yes, I think I did. I don't know that I understood that until recently. But I think that over time, my contributions have added much, much to the story. Indeed. Carl, how did you find out about Betty's story? Well, Lois, I, I did what most freelancers do, which is answer the phone. <laughs> my production partner, Doug McConnell, got a phone call from uh, a friend he knows at Rosie the Riveter Trust, which is the nonprofit association that supports that national park. Marsha was looking for someone who knew something about film or television to help capture the story of this wonderful person on staff. They had a wonderful ranger. And uh, we were in the middle of something, but we thought, well, we'll always come and take a meeting, especially if it's in the national parks. So we came 
to the visitor center at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront Historical Park, which is quite a mouthful. And we went into the basement for a meeting, sat around a table and uh, with a few park rangers and, and one of them that was this woman named Betty. So the meeting started and Betty started to talk and Doug and I looked at each other. And once we were able to pry our jaws up off the table, we just looked at each other and said, we're doing this. We'll find a way. The nonprofit had not raised any money for this. But we said, literally, there was no time to waste. Let's get started. We jumped in and the next month we were filming with Betty. I mean, she was just remarkable. She just was, was so incredibly insightful and eloquent and spoke in such a way that it just blew us away. So we, we were hooked. How long have you been filming the documentary? Well, the bad news about it actually turned into good news. The bad news of not having enough money and of the nonprofit struggling along to get little bits and pieces of money over the years, the production spanned six years, primarily because we just didn't have the funds to do all of the travel that we needed or we had to wait on things. The good news is so many things happened in Betty's life. Her life accelerated beyond all. Uh, imagination just in the last 10 years of her life. So because we couldn't complete the filming in the time that we normally would, which would have been, this might've been a two-year project, took six years. We happened to be able to be there for so many wonderful events in her life that, that we otherwise would have missed. So it was very serendipitous. I think the only thing that the, the film suffers from is because it was so lightly funded, as many documentaries are, we didn't get the benefit of having a larger crew who could sit around and argue about the story and constantly make it better. It wound up being decided mostly on my desk with my dog curled up at my feet, and we'd talk about edits, and then we'd proceed from there. <laughs> well, it sounds like you had some excellent assistance there because the film itself is just gorgeous. Well, thank you. Carl, what was it like to be there in 2015 and capture a phone call Betty receives? At first, we don't quite know what news is revealed to her. It, it's rather suspenseful. Do I need to insert spoiler alert here, or would you talk about that? I would say this to any filmmaker or anybody who creates art. There are some things that are out of your control and you have to be lucky. And this was one of them. I, I, I tell people this, the only reason that we captured that moment is that my director of photography, Stefan Runzel, and I had made a plan to go to the visitor center that day during Betty's talk just so that we could see what the lighting in the theater was going to be like and how we were going to need to light it when we began recording her presentations. And so we were there. And at the last minute, I said to Steph, why don't you just bring the little Sony camera along? We might as well shoot a little test footage rather than just look at it. And so there we were standing in this auditorium and, and Stefan just happened to be rolling when one of the volunteers came in and you see him tapping Betty on the shoulder and she leaves because part of her presentation is a 17 minute film. And so during that film, she goes out, she comes back and she's, she walks past Stefan and me and she's just looking like she's seen a ghost and didn't tell us what was going on, went back into the theater. And so we had no idea that this was happening but we were able to capture it simply because we happened to be there for a completely different purpose. But uh, she was completely blown away. And so were we that, that she had gotten a call inviting her to come to the White House to introduce President Obama at the 2015 Christmas tree lighting ceremony. And it was just, it was memorable so much so. And, and, and this is a good example of what I've always told other filmmakers is that the most important thing, the audience will forgive the quality of the footage if the story is compelling. And in this case, we filmed that scene with no, 
no external microphone equipment, uh, a little Sony DSLR and on my iPhone, <laughs> just because that's what we had. And you use what you had. We were not going to miss that moment. But yeah, much of that scene was filmed by me with my iPhone. Her colleagues worried that Betty had received bad news. Uh, yes, yes, I In fact, the news was very good. She returned to the theater and couldn't resist sharing it with her young audience. Inviting me to participate in the tree lighting ceremony and introduce the President of the United States. <laughs> Betty was going to meet Barack Obama. Betty, was that President Obama himself on the phone? It actually was John. Oh, was it John Jarvis? Yes. At the time, John was the director of the National Park Service. Ah, Betty, what was going through your mind when you got that call? Oh, you have no idea. I have no recollection of what that was. I know that I was speaking to a, a combined 10th grade class. And I told them what had happened. And I told them that I didn't know if I was supposed to be sharing it, but that they had to keep it a secret. <laughs> it was just larger than life. I love when you introduced President Obama. Oh, that, that was so incredible. I was standing on the stage. I was at a lectern. I was holding an evening bag that he'd given to my aunt, Emily, on her 35th wedding anniversary. And she had given it to her 18-year-old granddaughter, Vivian, on her graduation from Xavier College in New Orleans. And Vivian had given it to me, and I had given it to my granddaughter. It was so real that it's almost with me now. In the bag was a picture of my great-grandmother, and a string of pearls that had been given to a young Corps worker when she was in Mississippi in 64. They were in that bag together, and I was, was standing on the stage, and in those three minutes, three minutes, I was standing with the first Black president of the United States, and he was holding me, and we were backed up by a picture of the White House, which meant that that had been built by slaves and nobody in the world could have known what was going on but the three of us. Oh, I love it how after that you said, he puts the lie to white supremacy, he being President Obama. Oh, he did. He did. Betty, have other museums asked for your help in expanding their knowledge and materials, filling in those enormous gaps in our American history? No, they haven't. I don't even know whether they would be willing to, to add to it. I just don't know. I don't know. Except that everything that I said was true for me, and I wanted it known, though I didn't know at the time that it would be so important. Hmm. It does seem, though, that your impact on the National Park Service has been tremendous. You mentioned John Jarvis, the head of the National Park Service, and he spoke about how grateful he is for the ways in which you've helped the Park Service move forward. And part of that is brought out in the film, Carl, when you incorporate Park Ranger Desiree Munoz's story. Yes, right. Betty is far too modest about this uh, when she says she doesn't know what her impact is. Um, there are testimonials in the film and testimonials that I've heard just in conversation from people with the Park Service who say that Betty's impact on how stories get told and which stories get told has been significant. John Jarvis just uh, recently submitted a little video for Betty 
on her 100th birthday and and he reiterated again that her impact has been foundational to and particularly inspiring to younger rangers who are coming like Desiree and and like so many others and particularly uh, since the, the Park Service is doing a much better job now of recruiting and hiring people of color and encouraging them to include and represent their own stories. You know, it's fascinating. I, I didn't realize until I got more involved with the national parks that, I, you know, I always thought of national parks being these grand Western landscapes. But in reality, the, the, the National Park Service is the custodian of American history. All of our national historic sites are managed, cared for, and interpreted by the National Park Service. And so to do, to impact that institution in how we tell those stories and which stories we include, which is what Betty's done, is an enormous contribution to this country and to future generations. And she just won't tell you that herself. Hmm. Well, the film tells it magnificently. I hope so. Betty, I just love how you have tried and continue trying to change the world one conversation at a time. It has been such a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so very much. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful. Just received this award. Recently retired U.S. National Park Service Ranger, Betty Reed Soskin, from our conversation last November. She was joined by the documentary filmmaker Carl Beidelman. More information about No Time to Waste, the urgent mission of Betty Reed Soskin, is on our website, wabe.org. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Cameron Moore, also known as Yo-Yo Cam. I'm a character designer and mural artist and concept artist, and I'm based here in Atlanta, Georgia. I think that I learned to draw before I learned to write, and it's because I would see these interesting characters in TV shows and in video games and even on like cereal boxes and on billboards when I would ride around with my parents. I would just see interesting colors and characters and I always wanted to have this sort of connection with them. And I felt that trying to draw them out was my best way of doing so. Having a very colorful imagination, I always wanted to bring that imagination to a tangible form. I'm inspired by different comics I read, cartoons I watch, video games I play. I love the designs, I love the characters, I love the colors, and so I pull from these things whenever I'm drawing. But I'm also inspired by my life's experiences and just being able to go to new places and see new things and meet new people. These are all things that I pull from whenever it's time to create you know, a new character, or a new wall. I always love to make some sort of connection while also making it visually appealing. I call Atlanta home because I was born and raised here. This is the only place I know to be home. It's got all of my family or most of it at least. It's an amazing place. I've done a little bit of traveling and there's just no place on earth like Atlanta. And it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful city that has a ton of culture and style and flavor and some of the best creatives on planet earth. Atlanta has definitely influenced my art, but it was not necessarily through the city, but through its people. Because I work with a lot of other creatives on different projects, and through working with them, I get a bit of how they work and where they're, you know, where they're pulling inspiration from, how they're thinking, how they approach certain tasks artistically. And 
I incorporate these things, the things that I like into my own process. So Atlanta has definitely made its mark on me creatively through its creatives. Whenever I want to go and see new artwork in the city, I first look at Atlanta's local galleries. So Cat Eye Creative, I see ABV Gallery, I see Mint Gallery, I see City of Ink Gallery. And it's because these shows are constantly in rotation with new artwork. I'd say at least once a month, the contents of the gallery change, the artists showing change, they have live events, live painting, and it's always just a great, great time going there. And you can see a lot of artists that are moving and doing things in Atlanta. Because whenever you go to the bigger museums, you'll see artists with only a few of us, or it's only the most famous. But in the local galleries, you see a lot of Atlanta's everyday creatives, people who are really making Atlanta, Atlanta. That's the places where you'll see those artists. You can see my work at www.yoyocamart.com. You can also see me on Instagram at yoyocam. Social media is a little better to see the more everyday side of me for a more professional portfolio since you'll see more of that on the website itself. Character designer and concept artist Cameron Moore, also known as Yo-Yo Cam. More information about Yo-Yo Cam's work is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, we'll hear about Cassie's Ballad, the new outdoor immersive theater experience coming to the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Found Stages has created a new immersive theater experience inspired by a tragic point in Atlanta's history. Cassie's Ballad takes place outdoors, walking through nature, with the audience guided by actors into the beautiful West Atlanta watershed. The moving tale that unfolds draws from the period of Atlanta's missing and murdered children in the 1980s. Cassie's Ballad will be performed this Saturday, May 7th through the 22nd. Playwright Adai Moon and director Lydia Ford join me now via Zoom to talk more about Cassie's Ballad. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us, Lois. Adai, I'm interested in reasons this tragedy inspired you to create the play and why you want this show to be an immersive experience. Yeah, well, the tragedy of the missing and murdered children had a very strong impact on me when I was a child. I have an aunt who lives in Atlanta, and we used to come up to visit every summer. And once those murders started, we stopped. Mm. Where where was it you would come up from? Well, we'd come up from Jacksonville, Florida. So um, 
Ah. Yeah, once the murder started, we stopped. And I don't think I returned to Atlanta until I was a teenager on my way to college to attend Clark Atlanta University. So it had a huge impact on me as a child. And also, it, I often tell people, it's when I really became aware of race. Um, I grew up in a working class Black neighborhood, so everybody looked like me. <laughs> so, um, but, but, but the idea that being young and being Black could make you vulnerable was something, was an idea that I was introduced to uh, because of that tragic situation. What a scary introduction. Yeah. And scary for the community at large. I remember going to work. I had to get to WABE at 5.30 a.m. in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was still dark out. And when I would see people on Cheshire Bridge or Piedmont, you know, I'd I'd wonder if they were kidnappers. I mean, like, it, it was just, it was a horrible period and state of tension, in particular for the black community with children being kidnapped and missing and eventually found dead. Yeah, yeah. You know, whenever it's, it's talked about, it's, it's awkwardly framed as sort of a kind of a true crime scenario on whether or not Wayne Williams was the actual perpetrator, but but rarely is the focus on the impact that that had on the community itself. And, and I think when I when I started working on the the ritual uh, or the play that became a ritual, that's where I wanted to place the focus. Mm. And I was hoping you would explain what you mean by calling the experience a ritual. As a writer, as a person who's you know primarily a, a playwright, I'm, I'm interested in in different modalities and different ways of telling stories. And um, there's a very interesting, rich tradition of you know both in performance but also in playwriting of of narratives uh, that are shaped and formed as rituals, but with a very specific intent. And so while I wanted to highlight the story of the missing and murdered children. I also wanted to create a framework for, for people, especially uh, people of color who are constantly dealing with, you know, these sort of attacks on their psyches and on their bodies, you know, create a sort of space where they could unpack these things and hopefully find some healing. So structuring this narrative as a ritual was a way for me to do that. You know, while it focuses on what happened in the 80s, there's an ongoing problem with the way that we treat people of color in this country. And so I wanted that to be a jumping off point to highlight the fact that we still need healing in these communities. I'd love to add that I think there's something incredibly powerful around how we tell stories in community. And you know, growing up with the idea of the African griot as a symbol of healer through storytelling, I found myself thinking about that role in this piece. So if a whole community comes together to hear a story about their history or their past, it's also to teach and instruct and to provide a sense of strength and hope and all of those other wonderful things that we think about when we think of the purpose of how communities support its members, right? And this piece to me does that because we come together to hear a story and we come together as a community to support the storyteller mm. and we work with the performers or the artists involved to step into that world in order to learn something, in order to heal or, or to grow. And so in that way, I also love that aspect of Adaye's work as a community ritual or communal ritual. Someone called an ancestor helps to guide the audience through the story and along the trails. Who is the ancestor? Is that the griot you speak of, Lydia? It actually isn't, <laughs> but there's another character who, who I think takes that on more so. But 
what I I find so fascinating is that uh, it didn't start out as the ancestor. It started out as three different people. At least I hope Adaya, this is okay. You know, started out <laughs> yeah. as, as yeah, spill the beans. Yeah, right. <laughs> there were these fates, or like in the Greek sense, right? You have a community of women who are guiding, who are trickster-like, who are working in concert with and against folks. And so our ancestor developed out of that. And so I try to retain those qualities where that particular character is still trickster-like, is still pushing buttons in order to move one particular soul in a community's spirit forward. Is the experience different each night? I was wondering if the actor has to improvise with the audience as they venture through the trails because you have different people attending each night. (laughs) I mean, there there are probably some (laughs) improvisation definitely involved, but you know, it's a scripted piece. But I think the difference of the experience has a lot to do with the audiences or the participants that come to experience it and what they bring to it. I think it's, you know, the thing about immersive work and about um, ritual work that I love so much is that it's not, you know, the performers or the initiators carry a certain weight, but a lot of weight is also carried by the people who came to participate as well. The character Cassie loses her voice from trauma and the audience begins a search for the lost voice. Would you talk about the symbolic meaning to this lost voice? Yeah, um, well, it, it was interesting. Um, so, so this piece began at, as an actual, you know, play in, in, in quotes before it became a ritual piece. And in the play version of the experience, there, there are a lot more characters, but I was really intrigued by this idea that, you know, even though th- there were two young girls who were a part of the missing and murdered children's cases, there was so much focus p- placed on the young men who tragically lost their lives. And I was just imagining like what it might have felt like to be a young black girl and to in a way be ignored when all this was happening. And so the initial idea for her voicelessness was that she was refusing to speak because she felt left out and isolated. As the piece expanded and became something else, the voicelessness or the inability to speak, I think now is really a reflection of of the trauma and how trauma silences us in some ways. So yeah, the search for her finding her voice became the the major sort of dramatic impulse for for the ritual. I saw on the Found Stages website for Cassie's Ballad, there's a beautiful image of the southwest Atlanta woods behind a group of carved puppets, a model of the bottle tree growing out of the head of one of them. What does the bottle tree represent in African culture? And why did you want to include that in the advertisement for the play. Bottle trees are a major personal, like, creative totem for me. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I've written about them in other pieces. My new play development company that, that I co-founded, Hush Harbor, our insignia is a bottle tree. So, so bottle trees are very special to me for a lot of different reasons. But, but in terms of uh, African-American culture, uh, bottle trees were often assembled in the front yards of people's homes for one or two reasons. One, one reason was to protect the home, you know, from any people with ill intent or ill energy, to protect the home and protect the yard and protect that sort of sacred space. And there's also another tradition of bottle trees as being actual homes for spirits, ancestral spirits to, res- to reside in. And so that kind of dual mythos of what the bottle tree is and what it represents. This idea of protection, but also an idea of connection to ancestry, I think is a really kind of central part of my artistic practice in my life. And so bottle trees have a tendency to pop up (laughs) in strange places (laughs) when I create some. 
I will be on a closer watch for that with future work. In addition to the live experience at the watershed, Found Stages and Hush Harbor Lab have been hosting live community conversations via Zoom. Two more will take place on May 11th and 18th at 6.30 p.m. What will be addressed in those conversations? I think the, the focus of, of those conversations and also some of the other community engagement that, that we've been designing, the, the focus is really on healing and on ways that, that we can you know, continue as a community to address ongoing traumas and concerns that are directly related to racism and white supremacy, but also how are ways that we can heal ourselves and empower ourselves as well. So that'll be the focal point for, for both of those conversations and for the additional community engagement behind the show. What does the Atlantic community stand to learn today from those tragedies that took place some 40 years ago? Mm. You know, it's taken almost 40 years for the city to even fully acknowledge it. <laughs> and that in and of itself, I think is an issue. Hopefully, as a city and as a broader community, you know, we're reaching a point now where when harm happens to one of us, we realize the impact that it has on all of us. Playwright Dai Moon and director Lydia Fort, their new immersive theater experience, Cassie's Ballad, takes place Saturday. May 7th through the 22nd, outdoors at the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance. You can find out more on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, our new series, Film Crew Files, where we hear from some of the many Atlantans helping to keep our city's movie industry thriving. Today, featuring set decoration buyer Sarah Riney. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's no secret that the film industry in our city has been booming for years now. In our new series, Film Crew Files, we get to know some of the hardworking Atlantans who keep these sets running smoothly. My name is Sarah Riney, and I live in Grant Park. I've been living in Atlanta since 1996. I've been working in the film industry for about 11 and a half years now. Um, I am a set deck buyer, which means I work for the set decorator. Set decorator is in charge of everything you see on a set that is not a hand prop. It's lighting, it's rugs, it's electronics, it's vintage items, it's period furniture appropriate to the era that the script is written. If it's outside, outdoor sets can include dumpsters, rusted car parts, pieces of tractors, huge electrical power poles and lights like you would see in a parking lot of a mall, which is not necessarily easy to find. So it's a little bit of everything. It's kind of a wild goose chase every single day, but that's the fun part of it. How did you get started in the film industry? When I met a set decorator at a party and she mentioned that she had a show coming up soon that she was about to start. She was gonna need a set deck buyer. And I was asking her, what exactly is a set deck buyer? And that's how I found out that the job even existed. Tell us about a normal day at work. There is never a normal day for me. Uh, every day is different. I'm always working a certain amount of shopping list. I'm going through 
what sets are coming up, what sets have moved up, what sets have fallen back due to weather. For example, if it's an outdoor set, it's getting pushed because we have a lot of rain coming through. So the schedule constantly changes. I'm basically on the lookout for everything all the time. You never know what I'm gonna need on an episodic. On a movie, you have a little bit more idea of what you're gonna need throughout the entire run of the production. Um, but especially in episodic, it is wise to take photos of just about everything you see that you think you might be able to buy or might need in the future. Some days I have to run to set last minute because something broke. If you see me on set, that's probably why I'm on set. I'm flying something in at the last minute because something was broken or misplaced. What's your favorite part of the job? All the different characters and interesting people you get to meet and strange places you get to visit uh, when you're looking for something very specific. For example, there may be a very special tool that is only available from some certain guy that happens to hoard that tool and then you get to meet him and look in his warehouse and see all kinds of interesting things that he has in there. The hardest part of my job is sourcing really specific things. Like if a director decides they want a baby grand piano that's painted with tiger stripes, well, that's not something you're gonna find and that's something we have to get made. The things that uh, are the hardest to find are the things that are the most specific. If you just need a house to look like someone's house that shops at Target or someone's house that shops at Macy's, that is easier to understand than very, very specific things. And when a character is really well written, they're easier to decorate for because you can almost visualize in your mind someone you know that's similar taste or similar style. Are there any common misconceptions about your job? The biggest misconception is that I shop all day. Like I just buy fun stuff. Um, those days are few and far between. A lot of days it's scrambling to catch up with a schedule. Uh, a lot of days it's finishing research on something so that you can actually pull the trigger and buy something. And plenty of time it's finding a replacement for something that was supposed to ship in time that did not ship in time. So I'm not strolling them all casually, loaded down with shopping bags like uh, some kind of cartoon. I am probably in someone's garage looking at rusty bicycles on a rainy day and the roof is leaking. Will you share a favorite production you've worked on? The Walking Dead was really fun. A lot of great people on that show. Second might be Coming to America, um, the sequel with Eddie Murphy uh, and the usual characters. Uh, that was great fun. Worked with a great crew on that. And um, that one was really fun to match some of the stuff from the first movie, which of course no longer existed. So we had to recreate those sets. And then also working on the new stuff, the palace was amazing. And uh, some of the other crew worked really hard on the palace and it was outstanding. Um, I wish we could have seen more of it, the way it was filmed. Perhaps didn't highlight the setting as much as it could have, but that's neither here nor there, because I am not a director. Atlanta is great for the film industry. There are a lot of resources here. There are a lot of great places to buy things. People are pretty open to film crews and understanding how much effect we have on the economy and how Everything that we do trickles down, uh, whether it's like my paycheck and then I go out to eat at my favorite restaurants or I, I buy things for my own home or whether they understand that um, this file cabinet and all these records and this stereo system from 1970 that I'm buying out of your garage, that is film money helping you sell the things you don't need and then have money to buy things you do want. I think people also understand that the industry being here and us being such a production hub does have a wide ranging effect and whether it's people are being trained up and then uh, they also train other people. Just the general creativity of people in Atlanta. In general, there's been a creative squad here for quite a while that has done all kinds of theater, haunted houses, pop-up events, all kinds of campy, fun, wacky, comedic, interesting people. And um, I like to think that a lot of my friends who were doing those things for years ended up in the film industry so that they could have health insurance and a full-time job. 
And I think that that has been a huge boon here and people don't really realize how many people who used to have two and three jobs as a bartender or uh, doing their comedy on the side and that kind of thing have ended up in the film industry and given back to that community so much. The positive effect the film industry has had on my life, I would like to say that um, I probably wouldn't have my house. Uh, I joined into the film industry right after I got laid off from my corporate job and working at a corporate nonprofit. Um, and so if I hadn't had the film industry and hadn't had that steady amount of work, I probably would have not been able to pay my rent, my mortgage after the market crashed around 2007, 2008. I've met a lot of great friends. I've met a lot of really cool people. I've seen interesting things and read really funny scripts. And um, in general, I would say that it's been a positive effect. And I think it's been a positive thing for the city. And similar maybe a little bit to how the tech industry in Atlanta grew and grew and grew, but I feel like the film industry has a lot more branches on the tree and um, affects a lot more people because there are all these little smaller industries, whether they are for casting or whether they're for renting your car to a show or people who make specialty props and specialty costumes freelance. It's really just become an all-encompassing thing within the city. And um, I believe it's been a, almost entirely positive for the city and for the people who work in the film industry. Set Deck Fire, Sarah Riney, and our new series, Film Crew Files. More information about Sarah's work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about The Wake, a new play with Old Irish songs coming to the Shakespeare Tavern this Sunday. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.